This doctor views his life not so much as a race, but rather as a beautiful long distance run, and with very good reason. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Kurland. Dr. Kurland is Professor of Pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh and is a member of the Division of Pediatric Pulmonary Medicine, Allergy, and Immunology. He is also the author of the book, My Own Medicine, A Doctor's Life as a Patient. Dr. Curlin, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Well, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Tell us what led to you writing your book. Uh, The short version or the long version? The short version. We'll start (laughs) with that. After I arrived here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I became involved in a writing group. Uh, It's a long story as to how I got involved in that, but needless to say, it was a writing group for medical professionals, physicians, nurses, uh, speech pathologists. There were many of us. And it was directed by a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, Lee Gutkind. And Lee is uh, interested in creative nonfiction, which is an, an, a little bit different genre. He encouraged all of us to write. And um, finally, after I'd been in this group for about a year, I wrote something. And that turned into a 1,000-word short piece that appeared in Newsweek and, in a My Turn column, where I wrote about getting my chemotherapy for my illness. I got about 500 letters after that piece was published, and I got a, an interesting phone call out of the blue from a woman who ultimately became my literary agent, and she suggested that I write a book. It turns out that I think she had uh, gone through, as it were, chemotherapy with her father during his bout with cancer. And whatever I wrote seemed to strike the nerve in her, and she asked if I would be, consider writing a book. Now, the 1,000-word article I wrote for Newsweek only took me about two and a half months to write. And in a moment that I can only describe as uh, some sort of insanity, I said, sure, I'll write a book, and not doing the math. I mean, I didn't realize it at the time how long it would take. But it took me 10 years to write the book. Well, it's an excellent book. It was worth the time. Thank you. Well, I think it was worth the time. I mean, it was. I didn't write it as a cathartic event. It uh, didn't really turn out to be a cathartic event because it takes 10 years to write. Uh, Catharsis to me means something that happens fairly quickly. But it was a useful experience for me in learning and in, in trying to come to grips with uh, what I'd been through and, um, and how I dealt with it. I didn't write the book, obviously, to tell people this is what should happen to you or this is how you should behave or, uh, you know, when you're confronted by something like this. But, um, but nonetheless, I think it, it serves its purpose. Your book tells us the story of your battle with hairy cell leukemia. When were you diagnosed with this disease? I was diagnosed with hairy cell leukemia just before my 41st birthday in 1987. What's the incidence of hairy cell leukemia? It's about 1% to 2% of all adult leukemias. It's fairly rare. And what's the cure rate? Well, when I was diagnosed, at the time of my diagnosis, and I write about this in the book, I, I was... Uh, I was at the Mayo Clinic, and that's a long story, which is contained within the book of how I got there. I asked my hematologist-oncologist to direct me to the library to some articles about hairy cell leukemia. This was just after I was diagnosed, and went to the literature, and that lasted about 30 minutes of me being able to look at the articles, because the long-term survival in the literature at that time was about 40 to 50%. It was a little bit less than a coin flip for long-term survival. 
and uh, I, I took a look at those numbers, and I, uh, I closed the journals and, and left the library. I decided at that point that I was going to be the patient, not a physician, uh, and it was important that I do that and not try and either second or third guess my physicians about what to do in my case, as it were. How were you diagnosed? Well, I mean, I was diagnosed with a bone marrow biopsy, but the, the, the way it came to that was that I was... Uh, I was training at the time for a, a run uh, in the. I, I would, first of all, let's get back. I, I was living in Sacramento at the time. I was on the faculty of the University of California, Davis. I was and still am a pretty avid runner, only back then I was a lot younger and a bit faster. And I was training for what was to be my first uh, 100 mile ultra marathon. I'd done uh, some 50 mile runs, but I was training for a 100 mile ultra marathon over the Sierra Mountains. And, uh, and I was having some nagging chest pain as if I'd fractured a rib. I'd had a prolonged cold. I'd had some coughing. I thought I'd cracked a rib, you know, coughing. And finally, uh, after, you know, when I had a spare moment between patients, I ran to radiology and got my x-ray taken to just to see where the fractured rib was, just to confirm it. And, and I didn't have a fractured rib. Instead, I had a very large mass in my chest. So I, I was confronted by this, and it was big. It was about the size of my fist. And uh, that was a, a little bit shocking, more than a little bit. And within a couple of days, uh, I was at Mayo, where my father was on the faculty, uh, being seen by a very prominent adult pulmonologist uh, named Ed Rosenau, whom I'd known sort of by name. I'd never met him. And Ed went through my, uh, my exam, and he got new x-rays, and I had already gotten a CT scan of my chest. And the blood work that I had was quite abnormal, and it showed that I was uh, very low in platelets, uh, and I had a low white count. My hemoglobin was okay, so he brought me back the same day. I had a bone marrow aspirate, and uh, the diagnosis was made on that aspirate, or biopsy, I should say. Dr. Curlin, how has your experience as a patient influenced your work as a physician? I get asked that question a lot, Susan. And to be honest, uh, some part of me would like to say, oh, it, it, it revolutionized how I t- take care of patients. For those in your audience who, who saw the movie The Doctor with William Hurt, anybody who saw that film saw a physician who was, uh, you know, pretty tough on his patients, and then he himself was diagnosed with an illness and, and sort of changed how he treated his patients and how he looked after them. Uh, in my case, I like to think that I, I always try to treat my patients fairly well and nicely before I got my leukemia. What I can say is that I went through a lot of procedures and had to go through a lot of procedures and waited in a lot of waiting rooms. And I think that now I can tell my patients when they have to have, say, a a bronchoscopy, which I do a lot on children, uh, that I know how it feels to have this done. I can understand how both the children and perhaps the parents will feel about being confronted by by this procedure. So I, I can say from my experience, I know what this is like and be real honest about it. I also have a sense that I really can't stand it when my patients have to wait a long time in, in my waiting to see me in clinic, although I have to be honest and say I haven't conquered that one completely yet because they still, I have a lot of patients to see. So those are the two main ways, I think. It didn't completely make me a different physician because I'd like to think I was a pretty good doc to start with. You wrote about how painful many of those diagnostic procedures are. Do you give more pain medication now because of your experience? I do, for example, bronchoscopies a bit differently uh, in that my patients are, are deeply sedated. So they won't. I was essentially awake, for example, when I had my bronchoscopy. But that's how you do those in adults. In kids, we certainly don't do that. A lot of the procedures are painful, but what I realized is that the fantasized 
pain of some procedures far exceeds the reality. I write about being confronted with a need for my first uh, bone marrow aspirate and biopsy, and I was absolutely terrified. I mean, I had done them when I was a resident and an intern, and I knew what the, the needle was like, and I knew how the procedure was done, and that was one of the last things I wanted to have done to me. And Dr. Rosenau, my pulmonologist, had said that I had to have that done. And I was absolutely, absolutely terrified. And to the point where I actually convinced them to give me something to help me, um, help me withstand it, and which it turned out I didn't need. And I found out subsequently, because I've had I don't know how many bone marrow aspirates and, uh, through my, throughout my course of therapy, the visual image I had or the image I had of how painful this was to be far exceeded the actual amount of pain that was involved. Uh, so actually, in, in that way, I, I learned a lot. How long have you been in remission? I went into remission in uh, June of 1989. Have you made any lifestyle changes because of everything you've experienced? I'd like to say I did, but I haven't. Uh, I should take more time off work, but I don't. I still work anywhere from six to seven days a week, which is um, <laughs> which my wife is uh, keeps uh, telling me that I have to cut back on, and I keep saying that I, I will, and probably I will. I'm getting kind of on in the years, and uh, and I probably don't have to be here six or seven days a week. I can probably make it five or, well, make it six instead of seven. Tell us about your marathon running and how it helped your fight against hairy cell leukemia. I've been a runner since I was 14. I've been a runner longer than I was, I've been a physician. And uh, I have to say that I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm not a very good runner. I'm not very fast. But I have all the main qualities that are necessary for what's called an ultra runner, at least an ultra runner in my class. An ultra, run, ultra marathon is anything beyond the marathon distance. And the marathon is 26.22 miles or 26 miles and 385 yards for those of you who want it more exactly. Ultramarathons are, you know, a, a sport that is uh, much more popular than most people think. But at the same time, it's a, it's still somewhat of a fringe sport. The qualities that I have that allow me to do this are a combination of being fairly slow in my case, uh, running, being somewhat perseverant, being a little bit, you know, maybe not quite right in the head. I think helps. <laughs> How did that help me in my uh, my own personal, shall we say, battle with leukemia? Fighting something like a chronic disease, like uh, the type of leukemia I had entailed, uh, in my case, uh, a total of three surgical procedures and about a year and a quarter to a year and a half of chemotherapy. Uh, and that is not a combination that uh, lends itself to uh, sprinting, if you will. I mean, it, it took, I was diagnosed in March of 1987. I didn't go into remission until June of 1989. So, that's a long time, and one has to practice a lot of patience uh, in order to do that. And that, I think, in that respect, my, my long-distance running was very, very helpful for that, maintaining some equanimity about what was happening to me, uh, maintaining my sense of self was important. Trying to maintain control of my life uh, was, was the hardest part. Uh, one of the things I learned in this, in this experience was that... Uh, or one of the things that was underscored, I should say, in this experience was the fact that uh, as a physician, I was used to being in control of things. I could tell my patients when they had to come and see me, what drugs they should take, what they should do. I was used to being in the, the driver's seat. Becoming a patient uh, takes that all away or takes away a lot of the control that one has over one's, one's allotted time in, in the day, uh, in the week, in the year. 
my chemotherapy had to be delivered at certain times. I had to leave my office, go to walk to my uh, hematologist's office to get my, my chemotherapy. When they told me I had to have my surgical procedures done, there wasn't a lot of discussion of me trying to rearrange my schedule. It was I was going to have surgery, and that was that. The whole effect of this experience showed me how, how fragile my, my control, my, my whole aspect of control or my whole perception of control really is. It doesn't take much to throw that off, uh, and a chronic disease certainly does the job of throwing off your, any idea that you're in control of things. I want to thank Dr. Jeffrey Kurland, who has been our guest discussing his book, My Own Medicine, A Doctor's Life as a Patient. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.